The banking crisis is not over. Market positions and new evidence continues to suggest there is going to be more of it and more fallout from it. And by fallout, I don't mean from rate hikes and higher interest rates. Instead, this goes much deeper inside the collected balance sheets, not just U.S. regional banks, but also further afield from those. I think most people, the banking crisis is ancient history by now. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen just this weekend, I think, summed up their position, not just on banking, but overall the economy, the soft landing, the Goldilocks scenario where the banking crisis has been dealt with successfully and the economy is finding its rhythm. It's finding that sweet spot for, as I said, the soft landing. What she said was, I'm feeling very good about that prediction, Yellen said Sunday, when asked about her previous hopes that the U.S. would avoid a recession while still reigning in consumer price gains. I think you'd have to say we're on a path that looks exactly like that. Well, it's on a path that superficially might look like a soft landing, but looking a little bit deeper than that, you can see the path has all sorts of bumps and bends in it. And we can see them coming as we'll get to it a little bit later. Back to Yellen. Every measure of inflation is on the, on the road down. She also highlighted that while the U.S. unemployment rate increased in August after reaching the lowest levels in more than half a century earlier this year, that jump wasn't caused by a large wage of, wave of layoffs. Indeed, it wasn't. In fact, the increase in the unemployment rate, as I talked about with Steve Van Meter in a recent video, was instead due to about 700,000, more than 700,000 Americans suddenly joining the labor force. Was that because the labor force they thought was really good? Or was it because they're running out of options and instead thinking whatever there is out there left of the labor market, we need to get into it because consumer credit is drying up, as we talked about yesterday, banks slamming the door shut on that, as well as gasoline prices moving higher. And of course, as the Federal Reserve itself has told us, nominal savings are running out too. So... Janet Yellen says, like many people, the U.S. economy is, is headed right for the soft landing, the banking crisis, nobody even talking about it anymore. Yet, we have many indications that tell us that more is going on here than a soft landing. The yield curve, forward rates, interest rate swaps, a whole bunch of others, including larger exposures to commercial real estate than maybe most people have, have realized to this point. And we're going to get to all that. But first, I'm Jeff. This is Euro Dollar University. Thank you very much for joining me. I'm still here in the Leeds, U or the Leeds. I'm still here in Leeds, the UK, attending a conference on the from the uh, European Association of Evolutionary Political Economics, which we're talking about the Euro Dollar system, the global dollar system, what it means, what it means for the Federal Reserve, what it means for you and me among a bunch of scholars who are now interested in the topic, thank God, because for the longest time, nobody cared about monetary mechanics or even money itself. We were all told in school, just let the Federal Reserve cover it. I was told about Alan Greenspan. Some others were told about Ben Bernanke. More recently, you heard about Janet Yellen for a little while, but Jay Powell. The Federal Reserve, the central banks, they have everything covered, yet... We can all tell there is more to it. The situation in the monetary system just isn't so simple. So I thank you very much for joining me. And let's get back to the banking crisis, the economy, fallout from it, how the two actually play into one another. A weak economy, more banking crisis. 
what is the what is it that the markets are actually telling us? Because one thing that they're that's pretty clear they're not telling us is inflation risk. They're not talking about a soft landing so much as they're talking about dangers to the downside, where disinflation actually becomes symptomatic of being our enemy here. We want the end of consumer prices, sure, but we would like it if it was like Yellen says, where the economy just gently glides into a touchdown and goes on from there in a very stable, focused, sustained manner. But that's not what's being priced into the marketplace. And that by marketplace, I'm actually going to include the stock market, at least part of the stock market, in our review today. But let's go back to commercial real estate and the bank, because I think pretty much everyone knows that we're going to have a commercial real estate problem, and it's going to be a problem. That's the real fallout here. It's very reminiscent in some respects. Let's not get away with it. Let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Some respects to the 2008 crisis where... Before then, everybody could see that we had a residential real estate problem. What they didn't understand or what they didn't realize because of all that stuff about the Fed being this, this uh, technocratic ideal was that there, the monetary system was much more complicated. And because it was much more complicated, the fallout and effects from what was a subprime mortgage crisis at the very beginning spread way beyond subprime mortgages. That's how we ended up with a global financial crisis that wasn't a financial crisis. It only looked that way from a certain uh, a certain perspective. So what we got um, just recently was an article in the Wall Street Journal that said, hey, you know what? Commercial real estate, everybody knows uh, regional banks in particular are heavily exposed to commercial real estate, but what maybe people don't realize is just by how much, because Recent statistics and recent reports from the Federal Reserve itself, that's one of them. What it said was maybe around a trillion and a half, two trillion, maybe upper limit. And the Wall Street Journal conducted an analysis. And what they found was maybe it's double that amount. They're thinking that exposure to bank or exposure of banks in the sector could amount to as much as 3.6 trillion because it's not just in direct loans from regional U.S. banks to uh, commercial real estate projects and commercial real estate developers. We also have to consider all the indirect ways in which banks might be exposed to that type, that type of debt. They've got indirect lending activities, foreclosed properties, trading portfolios, other assets that are tied to commercial real estate in some ways. And more and more, they're going to be directly involved, not just foreclosed properties, but in reworking perhaps deals with with uh, commercial real estate um, developers who are having enormous problems trying to work out refinancing and refunding. Commercial uh, Regional banks are going to only get deeper and deeper into the commercial real estate segment, whether they want to or not. In fact, we know they don't want to because other anecdotes and stories that we've gotten recently have suggested they would like nothing more than to walk away from it all, but they really can't. It's, it's one of those situations where it's bad for the developers, but it's likely going to be worse for the banks. And as the Wall Street Journal analysis showed, that $3.6 trillion exposure is about, uh, is approximately, represents approximately 20% of total deposits of the banks that are involved in it. So it's a huge, huge asset allocation for a, a, an asset type that is going to be experiencing worse problems, worse problems, not better problems, as the economy gets worse. We have to hope that Janet Yellen was correct in her analysis because 
any any uh, increase in the downturn, any more acceleration to the downside means even bigger problems than we already had. Again, going back to the journal article, they said office vacancy rates has hit a record high 13.1%, up six consecutive quarters. And as the economy continues to worsen, if it continues to worsen, if Janet Yellen is wrong about that, then office vacancies go up, cash flows go down, the ability to service debt impaired even further. More banks want to pull back from their funding, which means that there's not not as much refinancing, triggering more problems, more illiquidity, more banks that want to stay out of it, and on and on we go. The journal even used the term doom loop. And I don't think it was that much hyperbole. That way, it wasn't that much exaggerated given the risk, given what we already see, and given what the markets are pricing across the regional banking sector as well as beyond it. Let's go to that next. Let's talk about the regional bank se sector specifically. What we see with regional banks, and I'm going to use the uh, S&P 500, or the S&P 500. I'm going to use the S&P, or Standard & Poor's uh, ETF for the regional bank stocks. KRE is the symbol. And what we see is that regional bank stocks did not have a good March and April. In fact, up until around, just after First Republic failed in early May, regional bank stocks, as you would expect, they had a rough go of it. But ever since around May 4th, regional banks have been rallying. There's been plenty of buyers, plenty looking for bargains, thinking this, this banking crisis is over with. The Fed's got it covered with its BTFP. Uh, federal home loan banks are supplying additional funds. The Treasury Department's working out some mergers. We've seen one of those just recently or relatively recently after First Republic. So authorities are on the ball here. And if you're betting on the Goldilocks scenario, which includes a soft landing in the economy, as well as the banking crisis being over with, why not buy beat up regional banks? It makes perfect sense. At least there's a rational, a rational reason to do so. So KRE, that bottomed out around May 4th. And as it moved higher, we also saw the same move in long-term treasury yields, which I think some people get that backwards or have it confused because you would expect if our problem is rising interest rates, then a sell-off in treasuries, shouldn't that be bank, bank stock negative and bank negative? Because higher interest rates, lower treasury prices, isn't that what caused Silicon Valley Bank to fail in the first place? The answer is no. That was not really the story here. The, re the story on Silicon Valley Bank and the others was that they were forced to sell an asset that was underwater. So you had... Silicon Valley Bank interest rates, that story, when what we see is that long-term interest rates that are rising since around May 4th, again, same date, and regional bank stocks are rising together, that actually makes sense because if you look at interest rates fundamentally, higher growth and inflation expectations and relatively higher rates, less pressing need to hedge using treasuries, less pressing collateral needs, uh, also using treasuries, better better potential outcomes in the treasury market. So long-term yields go up, regional bank stocks, they start to go up too, thinking about potential, a higher potential for the soft landing Goldilocks scenario. But while interest rates, long-term rates in the treasury market have continued to back up a little more, regional bank stocks, those peaked around August 7th. That was the high in the KRE index, but the the upward trend really started to turn around late in July. And that's something we're gonna come back to again. So August 7th, KRE hit its recent high. The trend started to change around July 26th. And since then, 
the regional bank index and individual regional bank stocks have been trading lower and pretty substantially lower. They're not crashing, but they're suggesting that the market is increasingly nervous, not about rate hikes, again, because the correlation is backwards of what you would think here. It's about something else, about hidden dangers that we're not otherwise seeing, certainly not going to be advertised by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen or Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. Going spe Looking specifically at the Treasury market, what we see, again, as I said, um, Treasury rates have been hanging in there really since around the same time frame, late July into August, as well as now September. Rates have backed up, but really not all that much, which suggests that just from the yield curve perspective, something is bothering the marketplace such that it wants to continue to price depressed growth and inflation expectations when you look at nominal treasury yields compared to their short-term counterparts. That's the inversion. Inversion has remained, rel remained relatively stable despite the, the prevalence of soft landing, at least in narratives surrounding, or narratives that are being forwarded in uh, most mainstream financial media, certainly from public officials and their consensus view. But it's not just the yield curve. It's not just the inverted curve. We also see something similar in forward rates. The fitted instantaneous forward two years hence. So that's the two-year forward rate or what the market or what we think the market thinks the two-year treasury yield is going to look like two years from now. And unsurprisingly, that one has been inverted since last fall. But what may be surprising is that inversion has followed along pretty consistently with the most recent months that we were just talking about here with the regional bank crisis. What we find is that May 4th, that was the deepest inversion. And it was also the lowest point for the two-year treasury yield. Ever since May 4th, first of all, you had an, an uptick in the treasury yield. The two-year moved up along with the longer-term note rates, but also the two-year spread to the two-year forward rate. That one narrowed a bit up until around July 6th and 7th. Ever since July 6 and 7, the two-year two-year cash rate has been mostly sideways, while the two-year forward rate inversion has been steady again, and steady at a at a pretty substantial inverted position. So again, the market is saying that something is likely to happen where forward rates, uh, not too far into the distant future, are going to be are most likely to be lower. And that market market um, position, that market probability seems to have stabilized since around early July, maybe middle part of July, consistent with what we're seeing in the bank stock index, the regional bank stock index in the U.S. And it's not just for treasury. Let's talk about swap spreads, interest rate swap spreads. Unfortunately, these are the SOFR-based swap spreads because there is no more LIBOR. LIBOR proved itself time and time again, which is the reason why they got rid of it. But we have 30-year SOFR swap spreads. We also have 10-year SOFR swap spreads, which not as useful an indication, but still, even the 10-year SOFR swap spread, what we see there is that it had decompressed from April 25th. So even before the, the, part, the, part, the, the period we're talking about here, early May. So April 25th to around July 24th, we see decompression in the 10-year swap spread, which is consistent with everything else. Lower probabilities of problems in the economy as well as the financial system. Decompressing spreads, that's mostly a positive signal. Whereas compressing even negative spreads or compressing more negative swap spreads, that is a negative deflationary sig signal. And that's what we've gotten from the swap market since around July 24th. 
10-year swap spreads, those have been compressing again, further negative, not a huge amount, but then that might just because they're so for not LIBOR. We don't have LIBOR anymore to test to test our to test one against the other, but we have compressing compressing spreads again, especially in the 30-year swap spread, 30-year interest rate swap. And the 30-year has been one of the best indicators of collateral shortages, collateral scarcity, risk aversion, balance sheet constraint among dealers. You see the 30-year swap spread compressing. That's not a good sign. It's certainly not an inflationary sign. It's a decidedly deflationary one. So we go back to the 30-year swap spread again since around July 24th, maybe even earlier June 30th. So between late June when the PBOC started really uh, jiggering around with CNY and really July 24th, so July, late July into August and now September, we've got some mild compression of 30-year swap spreads, so for swap spread, which is consistent with long-term nominal rates hanging in, not skyrocketing higher with inflation and, and uh, rate hikes and everything else is supposedly wrong with the treasury market. We got forward rates, the inversion forward rates that's relatively stable. And we've got the regional bank stock index that is going down again. Markets are perceiving rising risks, but about what? Well, the economy is certainly part of it, but maybe not the entire part of it. And in fact, as I said in the beginning, as the economy potentially worsens and deviates from the path toward to Goldilocks, maybe at that point, the banking system and commercial real estate really does become a more front burner problem from its forgotten position where everything is right now. The banking crisis is not yet over. It, isn't, it hasn't turned red hot again like it was in March and April, but it is there simmering under the surface if you know where to look for it. If you want to know what was really in that payroll report that Janet Yellen was referencing, click the video linked below me. As always, I thank you very much for joining me. Huge thank you, Eurodollar University subscribers, as well as all of our members. Till next time, take care.